The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. This is the Freeman Report with your host, James Freeman, on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hello. So the farmers are angry across the world and are organizing and they're not going to stop. This is the message that politicians should heed very carefully in the coming weeks. Hello and welcome to the Freeman Report. It is Friday the 23rd of February 2024. Um, My name is James Freeman and yes, the farmers are definitely angry here in Wales as well. I spoke with the organiser of a planned protest by Welsh farmers, which is going to happen next week here in Cardiff, Wales, which comes after the First Minister for Wales, Mark Drakeford, blamed the current predicament Yes, he blamed the farmers on the current predicament. Get this, he says it's their fault because they voted for Brexit. Now, either Drakeford is purposely trying to wide the farmers up, which I, that seems very, very unlikely. Either that or he's stupid, or both of them, maybe. Um, I'm going to go with the second of the two options. Um Firstly, farming unions in Wales supported a vote to remain in the EU. And secondly, there is no evidence that farmers voted en masse for Brexit. There are no polls or other evidence to prove this. And thirdly, it is a very odd statement to make, because what Drakeford is, well, at the face of it, what he's saying to farmers is that I now have the power to restrict your farms in Wales because you voted for Brexit. A very odd thing to say. It doesn't address in any way um, the farmers and what they're angry about, and so it looks like an all-out attack on them. The fact that Wales actually voted to leave the EU also seems to be a fact that Drakeford just cannot get his head round. So Welsh farmers are angry actually because Drakeford wants to make future subsidies conditional on farms, turning over 20%, yes, 20%, a fifth of their land over to trees and wildlife, which has nothing to do with Brexit, other than the fact that he wouldn't have the power to do this if the UK was still in the EU. Very odd indeed, especially when you see scenes this week of farmers targeting Drakeford as he goes around Wales on public engagements. Um, There are several videos of tractors blocking his ministerial car and of him having to flee a public engagement because of hundreds of farmers showed up on the scene. Now, This is a delicious sight for freedom lovers in Wales um, to see um, the Labour Party in trouble here because we've had a semi-dictatorship in Wales for years now, Um, over 100 years, in fact, to be precise, when you look at the councils um, and, you know, how people have voted over the last 100 years. Um, Voter turnout these days is is very, very low, 47% at the last Welsh elections. Um, And for a number of reasons, those who do vote for Labour, they vote for Labour regardless of how awfully they perform in the Parliament. Um, The miners' strike against Margaret Thatcher um, in the the mid-1980s sealed this pattern of voting recently. 
um, whereby families and communities use the word Tory as a form of abuse, um, regardless of whether you vote for Tory or not. If you stand for something they despise of, they call you a Tory. Now, the upshot of this is that the communities in, um, in, in Wales vote for Labour regardless of their performance. The joke in the Welsh Valleys where I live is that if you put a red rosette on a donkey, they will vote for it. And they certainly do. And there are some donkeys in that parliament. So to see the farming situation blow up in Labour's face straight after the 20 mile an hour debacle is a wonderful sight to behold. Um, on the 20 mile an hour policy, more people voted or signed a petition in protest at the policy than voted for Labour at the last Welsh elections. And now the farmers are planning to invade Cardiff next week. Opposition politicians will be there to speak alongside the farmers and I will be there to capture the whole thing. And the backdrop to all of this is that Drakeford is due to step down shortly and the frontrunner in the race to replace him is Vaughan Gething, who was health minister during COVID. And to the astonishment of Welsh TV viewers this week, Gething said on TV that with hindsight, he would have locked down earlier and harder during COVID, which is absolutely crazy given the damage that lockdowns have done. Gething is, uh, is popular within the Labour Party, but quite unpopular with many people in Wales. So is this the start of Labour's grip on Welsh politics starting to come undone? Like I said, I'll be covering the protest in Cardiff next week. I'll be there doing interviews with the farmers and politicians. Today's show also has a farming focus as I'll be speaking with the CEO of the British War Board, Andrew Hogley, um, in the second part of the show. I actually invited Andrew to appear on the show um, following Gemma Cooper's story last week on the fact that farmers are concerned about the price the board offers farmers for their wool, which farmers say doesn't even co cover the cost of shearing. However, before that, I'll be speaking with former UKIP leader, soldier and police officer Henry Bolton OBE. I invited Henry on the show after seeing posts um, from him on X this week about how MPs are receiving threats from the Islamic community in the UK and how this is affecting the behaviour of MPs in the House of Commons, like the chaos that we've seen this week surrounding the SNP vote calling for an immediate ceasefire on, in Gaza. I'll also be asking Henry for his views on immigration and the overall state of British politics. So stay tuned for that straight after today's breaking news story with Gemma Cooper in a moment. If you want to get in touch, then email me at jamesfreeman at tntradio.live. And if you're enjoying our coverage of the Assange case this week and of our regular programmes uh, and you think that we're doing a good job, then please let us know. Leave us a positive review or follow us. Give us a like or comment on X, Facebook, Gab or Getter and help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk TNT. My name is James Freeman and this is the Freeman Report for today's News Talk TNT. There's a lot going on. So it's important to stay informed and up to date. Get ready, because here we go. At the top, 30 minutes past and when it breaks. 
Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hello, Gemma. Can you believe it is the last Friday of the month of February? Um, seems like 2024 only just started and yet we're almost two months down already. You know, time flies. Time flies is the expression, isn't it? Time flies when you're having fun. But actually, I think it's a proven fact in physics, I think, that, you know, when you're enjoying yourself, your vibration speeds up and everything does does go quicker. Um, and when you're not enjoying yourself and you're not where you're supposed to be, everything feels slower. So I would take that as a kind of uh, indicator that we're doing the right thing here at TNT. And I certainly feel that this week in terms of broadcasting with our coverage from outside the Royal Courts of Justice uh, for the Assange hearing, I think we definitely are in the right place doing the right thing. Absolutely, we definitely are. And this farmers, um, uh, the protest globally, we're at the forefront of that. And we will be next week. Um, I'll be down there. So I'll be reporting back on the show. Um, we'll have um, some of the um, speakers, hopefully getting them on the show next week. And I'll be down there, as I said, recording some interviews with some of the farmers there. Absolutely brilliant. And that's exactly what we're here for, exactly why we were uh, founded. The whole point is to look at these massive global issues, and they are globalist uh, policies, globalist uh, plans. Uh, but our, our kind of role is to expose them, show them for what they are, and hopefully facilitate change. That's what, that's what we're here to do, facilitate some change in this way these narratives are being thrust upon us. Yes. And isn't it great that the farmers are with us now? Because, um, you know, they, 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 well, they've got big tractors, basically, and <laughs> the public love farmers, you know, um, you know, public like doctors as well. But the thing is, with doctors, they get paid a lot of money. So people kind of, um, you know, they don't feel that sorry for them when the doctors tr sort of stand up and strike and stuff. But when the farmers do it, People understand that actually farmers aren't rich. They don't do it for the money. And the work that they do is really important. And like I said, those tractors, you know, those scenes on the motorways of all the tractors coming. Um, and of course, they're very, very good for blockading cities and parliaments and stuff as well. So, um, so yeah, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And um, TNT um, will be there right at the heart of this movement as we go forward. Um, Gemma, what um, breaking story have you got for us today? Well, this is an update on a story that I was teeing up, really, because I, we, we knew it was happening today. I talked about it with Sonia Poulton a few hours ago before this hearing was due to have taken place. And in the last 45 minutes, we've had a result on the hearing that I talked about earlier in the day. And it's the hearing on Shamama, Shamima Begin, uh, the 15, well, she was 15 at the time when she was radicalized uh, and went to live in Syria uh, as part of being radicalized by ISIS. Uh, I know lots of people have got different opinions about ISIS and that there's links to the CIA. There's all kinds of links about uh, theory about where that organization came from. But the facts are that she left the country back in 2015 uh, with two school friends. She was she was 15 years old at the time. Uh, she wasn't found until 2019 uh, when she was found in a refugee camp. Uh, she said that she hated Britain. She hated everything about Britain. She had no regrets about her decision to be radicalized as part of this extremist terrorist movement. Uh, then there was a big protracted legal battle as she changed her mind from 2020 onwards, she was stripped of her UK citizenship as a result of her actions. Her passport was taken away. She then retracted and said she didn't hate the Britain. She just hated her life. She wanted to come back. She wanted her citizenship back. And there's been a huge legal battle 
since 2020 uh, uh, ongoing uh, and she appealed last year at the decision to take her passport away and her UK citizenship away saying her lawyers are saying that at the time she was 15 she was trafficked she was exploited she was sexually exploited she had three children with an ISIS uh, fighter that she married um, and it was all part of a trafficking um, operation uh, and if it was that was the case then the UK Home Office and the court should have looked more favourably on her as a victim of trafficking which they didn't they stripped of her citizenship regardless. So this has been where the legal arguments have hung. Uh, she appealed last October on this decision. Uh, the, the, the decision was due today and the judge today has said no. The decision by the Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, at the time to strip Shamima of her UK citizenship, to take away her UK passport, was lawful. It was lawful. They said that in the last 45 minutes. So she will have no grounds to appeal. She's still in a refugee camp in Syria. She will remain there. She can never return to the UK. The judge has effectively thrown it out. It was such a high-profile case at the time, you know, world headlines and, and, the, and the interest that she generated. And she has appeared on mainstream media uh, several times uh, since, uh, saying how much she regrets what she did. But it's not enough. Um, the UK Home Office defence was, even if she was trafficked, which they're not entirely sure about. It was when it was a long time ago and she's now an adult and she still um, poses a significant security risk to the UK and shouldn't ever be allowed back. A judge today has agreed with that decision, thrown the appeal out. Whether we've heard the end of it, I don't know, because there's talk now of the lawyers taking that case to the Supreme Court. Uh, and all of this, of course, has come at a considerable cost to the UK taxpayer. So uh, we, we, I don't think we've heard the end, much like the Assange hearing this week. Hearings can tend to go on and lawyers tend to appeal and they, it goes on and on and on. So I don't think we've heard the last of this one just yet, James. Yeah, I'm kind of torn on this one. I would actually like to see her let back in the UK and then face justice here. I think the problem with that, though, is, you know, with the way human rights laws are these days, you can see her getting back into the country and then just being um, let off lightly and actually nothing happening. So I think the British government, um, what it's determining in, in terms of its approach to this is, look, you know, there needs to be a deterrent to people who want to go and join these groups and support terrorist groups. Um, and maybe this is their only way of actually providing that deterrent, because if she comes back to the UK, like I said, I think she'll get treated very lightly. But, you know, I have got some sympathy with her on a personal level. Um because she was 15 at the time. Um, God, if I think back to some of the things that I did back when I was 15, okay, they weren't against the British state, um, but I did some pretty stupid things back then, um, which had some pretty awful consequences. Um, you know, like um, smashing up my mum's car without her permission to take the car. Silly things like that, you know, which in many ways you could argue um, were um, much worse. Um, but um, yes, I do have some sympathy for that on that respect. But I think this is the right decision um, and it sends out the right message to those um, who would support terrorist groups and who would maybe, hopefully, will maybe think um, youngsters uh, make them think twice about ever going um, and joining and supporting some of these groups. Yeah, very possibly. I mean, I, it does strike me as a very sophisticated operation in terms of the fact that she and two school friends walked out of school, left the UK. They obviously were told where to go, what to do at the right time. They were 15 years old. Um, so the element of uh, radicalization and trafficking, it, it does come into it. And the UK courts, yeah. um, you know, the, the KC for the for the Home Office has, has recognized that and said, look, even if she was, she spent such a significant amount of time with ISIS. She had children with an ISIS, ISIS fighter. 
character. Um, you know, if she comes back now as a young woman, she's 24 now, she still could possess a pope. She still could pose. Sorry, it's Friday. It's been a long week. She still could pose a risk if that's if she's let back in. So you can see both sides of the argument, I think, quite clearly. But much like the Assange hearing, the, the judge seems to have considered this on a point of law and says it was lawful uh, that she was stripped of her citizenship, which was controversial at the time because um, the argument was that she would be left stateless, you know, a real nomad in the, in the, in the, in the very literal sense of the word with no home. Uh, but the UK argued at the time that she's Bangladeshi by descent, so she would have been able to settle there if she wanted to find a homeland. Um, so I can see both sides here, and it is a very controversial, mm. divisive issue. It's headlines over the world with this one. Um, but today, the appeal's been summarily thrown out. Lawyers are talking about taking it to the Supreme Court. Whether they have any more success there, I do not know. But interesting, James, your comments echo Sonia Poulton's comments from earlier. She was 15. Which one of yeah. us has not done stupid things at 15? I mean, I'm still doing stupid things now. I'm 53. So, you know, <laughs> what hope for any of us? <laughs> Tell us more, Gemma. Tell us more about these no, silly no. things. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, yeah, she was 15. And, you know, and we are very aware now of the radicalization that has gone on and how powerful that is. You know, um, we, we're kind of aware of it now, all the videos on YouTube that were around at the time. You know, they were glamorizing um, what was going on for, for people in certain communities. Um, some people even strapped bombs to themselves in this country and blew themselves up based upon that radicalization. So for a 15 year old, teenage girl um yeah I, I like i said i've got some sympathy with her on a personal level i'm sure she does regret doing that now but like i said you know we've got to strength send a, a strong message out to other youngsters in the uk that if you decide to leave the uk and go and join a terrorist group then don't be surprised if you're not going to be allowed back into the country um i think that's the the, the message that the british government want to send Right, Gemma, um, thank you very much for all of your um, coverage this week of the Assange case and everything else. I hope you have a great weekend um, and we'll see you again, hopefully, on Monday morning. Yeah, have a right. great weekend, James. Yeah, thank you. Right, to the rest of you, um, don't go anywhere. After this short break, we're going to have Henry Bolton, OBE. We're going to be talking about the threats coming from the Islamic community um, on MPs in the UK and how it's affecting how MPs are actually behaving in Parliament and how they're voting. Um, so for all of that, stay tuned with us right here on TNT. TNT's Jeremy Nell. He was saying to me how he has found himself trying to unlearn and relearn a lot of what he thought he knew thanks to the COVID era. And that's precisely echoing what I've been saying. And I su suppose millions of people have been saying that. Isn't that remarkable? You know, the Second World War was obviously a major societal event and, and global event, etc. You know, and you know, this, in a way, what we've been through for the last four years seems to be is you have to go back to the Second World War to find something similar for people of our generation um, and, and all people in the West, at least. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. <laughs> No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. 
Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk At the top of the hour, we'll keep on top of the news. It's the most important thing we can do. On today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Well, I'm delighted to um, have my uh, next guest. It's the first time he's appeared on the Freeman Report. He is Henry Bolton OBE, um, and he's a really interesting chap, actually. He's He was leader of UKIP for a period. He's been a former police officer, and he's been in the army, and um, he's been involved in diplomacy as well. Um, so what, delighted to welcome you to the show, Henry. Thank you very much, James. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for appearing. Um, Henry, let's dive straight in. Um, the reason I um, invited you on the show is because you've been posting quite a bit this week on the chaos that we've seen in the British Parliament, um, which is all being driven. Obviously, there's some politics flying around about the vote on Gaza. But the underlying kind of story within this is the threats that MPs are coming under. Tell us um, your understanding of what's going on and the threat that this poses, I guess, to democracy. Well, I think the first thing is, uh, you know, what was the situation in in the House of Commons on that day, uh, the day before yesterday? Well, the situation was that there was, there was a, a debate scheduled uh, about, and, and a, a, there was going to be a vote on a, uh, a, 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 a on the Gaza, on a Gaza ceasefire. Was the House of Commons going to vote for a, a ceasefire, uh, calling for a ceasefire in, in Gaza? So, you know, that's the context. Um, now, there was, there's a protocol, as everybody will appreciate, and certain rules um, governing uh, how that uh, such a debate takes place. It depends on who's tabled the debate and, and any amendments that have been put forward and so on. Um, and there's a protocol. There's a, there's a lot of convention behind that. And what happened was the Speaker of Parliament, the Sir Lindsay Hoyle, um, broke with convention, mm. broke or uh, sort of went against certain rules. He's got the authority to do that. But then the question was why? Because and that question why became particularly pertinent because as a result of him him changing the rules effectively, um, the, the parliament broke down into chaos. Um, there were the, the Conservative Party refused to participate in the debate. The Scottish Nationalist Party walked out, um, and it was it was their motion that was being debated. So it was chaotic, and so the question as to why the speaker did this became highly pertinent. And it now emerges that the, the leader of the opposition party, the Labour Party, uh, in his own words, urged the speaker to make this decision to change, uh, to go against convention and protocol. Um, and why? Well, that's, a, that's slightly unclear, but there th- seems to be two things that have emerged, and both are seriously worrying, uh, to me at least. Number one, the leader of the opposition um, felt because there was certain advantage in this to the opposition party, the Labour Party. Now, the first thing is, did the leader of the Labour Party exert influence on the Speaker to make a decision that benefited his party in that debate? If so, it was highly inappropriate. And that question is not being asked, certainly not loudly enough, and we haven't got an answer to that question. The second and possibly even more important point is that Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the speaker, when he explained what had happened and why he made the decision he did, said that information being put before him that was particularly, I can't, I'm paraphrasing now, particularly frightening for members of parliament, and that he was concerned about their safety and security, implying that there was a threat against people. And indeed, there seems to have been a situation where 
members of parliament were concerned if that the, if they weren't heard to speak at a particular time in a particular way then they would that then there was a likelihood or a possibility of violence being deployed against them and nobody's actually said this outright but it's clear that that wasn't going to come from the right of british politics it was coming from the islamists within british society which have been particularly aggressive in pressuring labor mp's now if that's the case and Sir Lindsay Hoyle and Sir Keir Starmer need to answer this question, whether that is the case or not. But if that was the case, what we have got is we have got threats and intimidation against members of our assembly now influencing the outcome of assembly debates mm. and the protocol and procedures of parliament. In other words, our parliamentary democracy is under attack and that needs to be addressed. The, there's a big discussion about the future of Sir Lindsay Hoyle as a result of him making this mistake, which he now, or this, this decision, which he now fully admits was an error, um, and he shouldn't have made it. But that's, that's a sideline to me. The big question is, is our parliamentary doc democracy now under attack from secularist in Islam? And it certainly appears that it is. And if so, that needs to be dealt with firmly. Yeah, and this isn't the first bit of evidence that we've seen in recent years that there is a problem there within the Labour Party in particular. Um, I mean, this is a problem for, for all parties, but of course, the grooming gang, um, you know, all of the evidence that we've had around that and the fact that mainly Labour, because they get lots of votes from that part of the 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 the, the, the British community, um, from, from, you know, mainly the Pakistani community, um, of them turning the other eye and, and actually helping to cover up what went on there because of the fact that they get votes. Um, a lot of criminality, organised criminal gangs um, being, you know, involved as well. We've heard about how council leaders, Labour council leaders, have been involved in the cover-up as well. So th this is a big question, isn't it? And, you know, I, I looked at um, Nigel Farage in the last um, couple of days has said that by the general election in 2029, we will have a radical Islamic party represented in Westminster. What are your thoughts I, I on that? And I, I think there's a very strong likelihood of that happening. And, and to, to be fair, look, there are a number of influences that come to play when a, a member of parliament makes a decision as to what to say in a debate and, and how to vote. Um, one is the, the, the individual member of parliament's own conscience and, uh, and opinions and beliefs, their, their own principles, if you like. Um, of course, that comes into play. Then there is the, the, the fact that they represent their constituents, and I'll come back to that in a moment, um, and they need to represent their constituents' interests and, and wishes when, uh, when participating in parliamentary business. Um, then there is the influence of the party, uh, the, the party to which they belong, the, pr the principles and policies of that party and the values of that party. And then, of course, there are there is now this emerging fourth influence, which is the influence of, uh, the, you know, of, of intimidation, if you like, of threats and intimidation um, and coercion. And that's the one I'm worried about. The, the first two, or the first three, um, I'm not. And, and of course, it's difficult sometimes in this case to separate the fact that many Labour MPs are reliant on the vote of the Muslim community within their constituency. And they have to represent that vote. That's fair enough. But it seems to me that we have, and I've said this for, for years now, the quality of our members of parliament across the board is so weak, mm -hmm. so poor, that they lack the courage and the integrity to do the job properly. And that means standing up to the coercion and the threats and having the integrity to say no. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, MPs are supposed to act without fear or favour. Um, we know the favour part is gone to the dogs um, because, you know, all the lobbies and everything that go on. Um, but this is the first time, I think, in recent years we've actually heard about MPs being fearful and actually changing their behaviour in Parliament. This is very worrying, as you say, Henry. Um, Henry, we're going to take a quick break for the news headlines now, but don't go anywhere because I've got more questions. I'd like to talk to you about the overall state of British politics and also immigration, oh. because that is a huge problem now. So stay, stay put. Don't go anywhere with us right okay. here on TNT. Hey, guys, great news. News Radio. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a quick look at your TNT headlines. The world's fourth largest cell phone network suffered a nationwide outage in the US on Thursday, sparking fears the telco may have fallen victim to a cyber attack. China's told the World Court that international law grants Palestinians the right to use whatever force necessary to defend themselves against Israeli occupation. And the US is back on the moon after successfully landing its first spacecraft on the lunar surface in over half a century. Are you enjoying listening to TNT Radio? Do you think we're doing a good job? Then please let us know. Why not leave us a like or a positive review or comment on Facebook, Gab or Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Right, now, Henry, I think we've established that there is a problem here. Um, you know, this has been building for many years and the problem could get even bigger. As Nigel Farage has said, you know, we could have a radical Islamist party in Westminster um, by the 2029 general election. What's the solution? What would you do if you were in charge? Well, I think if, if I was in Parliament, I, I would be trying now to push uh, for Parliament to legislate to prevent the formation or the establishment of religiously based parties, religious parties, if you like. Um, we need to keep religion. Of course, there are, there are value sets, there are principles and so on that go along with the society that we've sort of grown up in and involved in, uh, evolved in, um, and that politics have as well. But um, we need to, to avoid in this country having mm. political parties that are driven and whose decisions are made based on, on religious theology um, and ideology, rather than, um, if you like, the sort of democratic liberal values that we've, we, we've come to, that we've, we've evolved with, and we've come to grow and trust uh, in, in Western Europe and North America and elsewhere. Um, we've got, uh, that's, that I think is part of the solution. The other thing is, we have imported into this country um, uh, unsustainable levels, um, a, a rate of immigration that's not only numbers got a numbers implication, but also a cultural implication. And I bring with that, uh, brought with that, is the religious implication. And we have failed utterly to, we've not even attempted to integrate those immigrants into our society. The, the numbers and whether or not we, we, we take such numbers at what I think is an unsustainable rate is one debate. The other debate is, do we or should we try to assimilate immigrants into British culture and British society? And I believe we should. If you don't, mm -hmm. you end up importing foreign conflict, which we've seen on our streets playing out in, the, in, in recent protests and so on. Uh, you see it in the form of terrorism. You see it in the form of ideology. You see it in the form of different approaches to politics and, and, the, and political life. And we've imported that. So we need to address two things, I think. 
the religious religious element of politics and political parties and i think that's a legislative issue and then there's the other thing the integration and assimilation of, of immigrant communities to make sure they understand our values and sign up to them before we allow them to stay yeah and part of that is actually to do with legislation as well i think henry because i mean we saw in the last year we've added one percent to the overall um, number of people here living here in the uk we've seen the highest level of immigration ever um in the history of the uk and the problem with that is look i'm sure you like me i've got no problems with people coming in particularly people that are going to bring and add to the to you know to the country economically and to our values but when you bring in that many people in such a short space of time what we see is areas of cities where you know english isn't even the first spoken language and so the chances of people in integrating with us into our society in the uk is is virtually zero isn't it and that's where the problem is i think you know we need to reduce the levels of immigration so that it's so that people are able to come here and integrate within our communities instead of coming here and forming their own communities which are foreign to the uk um, Henry, we've got about five minutes left. I do want to talk about the overall state of UK politics because I just think it's in an app. I think we're in crisis mode, actually, in the UK in terms of our politics because we've got two parties that I think most of the British public don't want to vote for either of them. But the problem is our system is set up so that it actively prevents new entrants coming in. What are your thoughts mm. of the state of British politics at the moment? Well, I think... Huh? <laughs> We've got five minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Unfair Thanks, question, I guess. <laughs> um, look, I think I think part of our problem starts with education, because the education system does not educate our young people, and and it hasn't for for many years. And so this is now fed through to actually our members of parliament themselves. Uh, and the staffers and the researchers and so on that work for them, um, but uh, does not educate our young people as to what politics is about. They don't know the difference between mm. socialism, liberalism, conservatism. They don't know the history of the left-right spectrum. They don't know uh, anything about ideological sort of aspects or theological uh, sort of the um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the sort of the various economic theories and so on that go with politics. They're not taught any of this. They're not taught anything about, I know it's complicated because in the UK we don't have a, a written constitution, nor do I actually support one, but having one. But um, there is a way, that a well-established way, that British, the British legislative system functions. And, uh, but, but our young people are simply not taught about it. Then they go, they become MPs and they still don't know about it. Um, so what we've ended up with is, is a number of political parties, particularly the sort of, if you like, the Conservatives, the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats, who don't really adhere to conservatism, socialism or, or liberalism. Um, they've lost their direction. They don't. And we've got a, a generation of politicians who are not leaders. They have no vision. They have communicated no vision. Um, they don't have a, they're not able to plan a, a five point set of pro promises, five promises or nine pledges or whatever is not a plan, Prime Minister. Mm. It is not a plan. You know, tell me how you're going to do it, where the resources are coming from, what are the timelines, who's responsible for it, how are you going to monitor implement implementation? That's planning. I know people aren't interested in the detail, but it is the detail that's going to make a success or a failure of your policy. 
and they don't have a clue. So we've got this, this situation where nobody, including in Parliament, really knows the difference between what they're trying to achieve. Um, they don't haven't done any planning as to how they're going to achieve it. And the British public is left there totally and utterly confused, wondering what's going on. Um, and this, at the same time, we've got the first post, the post system still, which means that smaller parties really get very little influence, which has uh, the disadvantage that there are many ideas and voices out there that I feel need to be introduced to the National Assembly and to Parliament that aren't heard. And, and the two main parties can just ignore what is said by those parties who may have 10, 13% of the, the, the electorate behind them, but actually don't get a single voice in Parliament. Um, I think that needs to be addressed. Does that, yeah, does I'd that agree with you there. <laughs> Certainly about the education part. I mean, um, kids are, uh, are not taught about a lot of things, um, you know, how to manage money and what money is and economics as well. Yeah, go, go for it, Henry. Can I just briefly, the other thing is that we have been sold this pup, I think, I don't know what you think about this, but for 40 years or so, the British electorate have been told you have to vote. It's your civic responsibility to vote. Mm. You have to vote. Don't waste your vote. If you waste your vote, you've got no right to complain. So we end up voting anyway, even if we don't really like the people we who are put in front of us on the ballot. And we've got a system, a situation now where political parties, all of them, are putting forward people who really are absolutely not competent to govern this country. Um, in any in any way whatsoever, not all of them, but most of them fit that category. They're in there because they they're taught, they're they're party loyalists or they're uh, they're whatever, or they tick the right demographic box, and we end up voting for people that we know are crap at doing the job or will be. Yeah, but we shouldn't be doing that because we are we're creating the problem. Because if that party then wins. Then the leader of that party becomes prime minister and that person whether they're competent or not has a very poor quality pond from which to 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 fish for their cabinet ministers so we end up yeah. with government full of muppets the other thing we've we've seen in recent years as well just to finish this conversation henry is the fact that you know we get these leaders in they get booted out by their their own party and then we have a, a procession like we've had with um rishi sunak i mean he hasn't he hasn't even been voted by his own party to be leader never mind to be prime minister of the uk so it's an absolute that farce. To me. <laughs> <laughs> henry listen out and then there was a six, 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 succession of appointed leaders and and what happened to yeah. the party? Yeah, it collapsed. And um, I think that it looks like very probably that that's going to happen to the Tory party later this year. Henry, we have run out of time, sadly. Um, listen, um, where do people go to find out more about you and, and what you stand for and what you write? No, well, that's kind of you, James. Um, well, I, I've reinvigorated something called the Primrose League. It's an interesting name. People may raise their eyebrows at that. First formed in 1883. But um, if you want to read all about that, it's a centre-right movement uh, for people from across the, you know, the centre-right, members of political parties or or not. Um, and the, the website address for that is www.primroseleague.uk. Fantastic. Um, Henry Bolton, ladies and gentlemen, OBE. Thank you, Henry. We'll have to get you back on the show at some point. Thanks, Thank you very much. You. Okay. Right. Okay. We're going to go to a quick break now. And when we come back, we're going to have Andrew Hogley, who's the CEO of the British Wool Board. And I'll be asking him why his organisation isn't offering, or in the words of farmers, why is his organisation not offering fair prices for wool to the farmers? So don't go anywhere. Stay with us right here on TNT. 
With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The phantasmagorical farce of a Soviet-style show trial in which we had verdict first and then trial presided over by Judge Arthur Engron in Manhattan has concluded. And it's a big story, not just for the absurd verdict handed down by Engron, but no, a deeper story involving Engron himself, or more specifically, how he chooses to present himself to the public. Uncombed hair, unkempt clothes, sloppily knotted ties. Basically a man who doesn't care, a man who has no self-respect. And he has unwittingly become a symbol for what ails America. We've become a slovenly nation. Our streets are filthy. Our subways are unsafe. People board airplanes looking like they just rolled out of bed in three-week-old gym clothes. Where's the self-respect, America? Where's the the pride in being Americans? Where's the pride in having beautiful parks and clean subway stations and wonderful cultural amenities? What has happened to America? It's time we get our self-respect back. And those of us who are self-respecting, we need to do a better job of holding our fellow citizens to a higher standard. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk TNT. Even the thought of dementia can feel scary. It's why we put off getting help, even though we've noticed changes in our thinking or memory. But an early diagnosis can change everything, giving you medical help and a support system around you to help you live better. Start with Dementia Australia's online checklist. Because the sooner you know, the more you can do. The Freeman Report on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Right now, over the past few weeks, we've had many farmers um, here on the Freeman Report talking about the many issues, and there are very many issues for farmers. Um, one of them, one of the issues that's come up is the price of wool. Um, the farmers are saying that they're not getting a fair price for wool and that it doesn't even cover the cost of the shearing. So I wanted to get the other side of the story because I, as a former market analyst myself, I understand that prices, particularly on a wool market, um, the the drivers of that are not very um, usually quite complex. Um, so I thought we'd get the other side of the story. So I'm delighted to welcome Andrew Hogley, who's CEO of the British Wool Board, to the Freeman Report. Hello, Andrew. Hi. Good morning, James. Andrew, um, I wonder if you would mind starting by just tell us what the Wool Board is, um, when it was formed, and, and tell us a little bit about what you do as an organisation. Excellent. Thank you. So. British Wool was established back in 1950, shortly after World War II, before the invention of plastics, when wool was still seen as a national strategic uh, resource. Um, over the last 75 years, um, we've been fighting the growth in plastics as that has come through. But the best way to think of us is as a farmers' cooperative. We've got 30,000 sheep farmers in the UK. Generally, they have small flocks of sheep. 200, 250 breeding ewes producing 500 kilograms of wool. For that to be marketed, it needs collecting, it needs aggregating, it needs sourcing so that it can be sold to commercial markets around the world. Right, Andrew. Um, and like I said, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Let's start. Let's talk about the history of this. Um, back in the day when the British Wool Board was formed, 
Um, you know, what was kind of the prices like then? Did farmers used to get a lot of money for wool? And what was the position of, I guess, really importantly here, of British wool on the global market? Was it a premium product that we exported around the world? So in terms of prices, if you look in today's prices, inflation adjusted, um, farmers were getting 12, 13, 14 pounds a kilogram for their wool. If you go back to 1950, let's say that was before man-made fibers um, were invented over the through the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, prices fell dramatically. Um, there were still government subsidies up until 1992, 1993 as well, and then they were abolished 30 years ago. So for the last 30 years, we've been um, competing in what's a huge global fibre market, and there's been no government support uh, for UK sheep farmers as regards their wool at all. Um, you've had issues that have impacted the supply. So 20 years ago, there was foot and mouth disease in the UK. That led to a significant reduction in the national flock of sheep and a reduction in supply. So where we are today, as you look at the global fiber market, wool globally is only 1% of fiber. And of that global wool supply, British wool is only 2% of the global fiber supply. So the big markets in terms of wool production are Australia, followed by China and New Zealand. Um, but there's lots of Mongolian wool, Moroccan wool, Sudanese wool, um, wool from around the world that we have to compete against. So a lot of what we do, it's competing on the quality. And the quality of British wool is very different to, say, the merino wool that's grown in Australia. And let's talk about that just for a second, because I'm really interested in that in terms of the competition. So we're 2% of the wool market, which is 1% of the overall fibre market. But what what distinguishes, you know, what makes British wool different from, say, Australian or New Zealand wool? Yeah. So we're very comparable to New Zealand wool, but um, a lot of your listeners and viewers will be familiar with the name Merino. So you see if you're buying base layers for skiing or sportswear, it's it's merino wool. Uh, merino wool is grown in hot climates. So Australia and South Africa, the main um, markets for that type of wool. As you actually look at the individual hairs or fibers, they're much, much finer. So you can wear them next to skin. Um, typically, merino wool, it's 20 microns in terms of the fiber diameter. British wool, New Zealand wool is generally 32 to 35 microns, and some of our mountain breeds are more than 40 microns. So it changes what applications British wool can use on. I'm wearing a British wool jumper today, but a lot of British wool goes into carpets. It's carpets for the hospitality sector, incredibly durable, incredibly hard wearing. So high-end hotels, airports, cruise ships, they use British and New Zealand wool for the carpets. If you sat on the London Underground, you sat on British wool. So the Elizabeth line, um, that's uh, British wool made by a, a company based up in Yorkshire. Some of the other types of British wool go into bedding, so duvets, pillows, and the top layer of mattresses. So a wide variety of end markets, but it's not just clothing. Sure. And... What about the actual British market? So we're 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 um 2% of that 1% of the overall global market. But what about in the UK here? Do we support British wool? I mean, what you know, or, or do we import wool from all over the world? How does British wool fare in the UK market? 
So it's quite a complex market, and I'm sure you'll understand this. In terms of processing, essentially, there are only two factories in Europe that can do the initial processing on the type of wool that we grow in the UK. Both are based in West Yorkshire. Um, not surprisingly, they're our largest customers. But for them to stay economically viable, we actually need the Irish wool coming into the UK, the Norwegian wool coming into the UK, some of the French and uh, Dutch wool, and some wool from further afield, such as New Zealand, because the capacity of the largest factory is 50 million kilos of wool a year. British Wool as an organization only produces 25 million kilos of wool in a good year. Um, so for the processing to be economically viable, we do actually need other wools coming into the UK, but there needs to be transparency for the consumer. There's a huge number of wool products on the market that have a Union Jack on the label. Having a Union Jack on the label doesn't mean it's made of British wool. Um, and you often have it, uh, the label, if you read it closely, says designed in the UK or manufactured in the UK. The Union Jack doesn't mean it's British wool in the end product. So a lot of the work we're trying to do working with brands is talk about the provenance, talk about the high animal welfare standards that UK sheep farmers talk to, talk about the environmental standards. And there's been a lot in the press over the last couple of years, which has tarred all meat as, as bad. Um, or environmentally damaging. That's not getting the nuance of looking at the on-farm production systems. Um, sheep in the UK, generally, it's low-intensity farming, natural grazing on land that's sequestering carbon rather than emitting carbon, and land that can't actually produce food in any other way. That, compared to a feedlot in the Midwest of the US, where you have 120,000 cattle on a single lot being fed soya that's been grown in, in Brazil where they've chopped down the Amazon, you know, you, there needs to be much more nuance in the conversation. Animal welfare standards that British farmers have to work to are some of the strictest anywhere in the world. You know if the wool has come from um, British sheep farmers through British wool, high, high welfare standards, high environmental standards. Um, the wool's been graded to a high quality, and crucially, the processing and the factories that we have in the UK are operating to world-leading environmental standards. A lot of the production and processing that happens elsewhere in the world doesn't have the same control over effluent, doesn't have the same um, energy recapture in the system. So it's looking at the system as a whole and making the consumer aware of that. Now, Andrew, listening to you there, um, look, you know, I think... People are very supportive of farmers and particularly in, in the UK at the moment, we're hearing a lot about um, the farmers and, and the problems they've got. I know the British public, like many other um, populations around the world, want to support their farmers. Um, when you're talking there about um, all of the arguments for using British wool, um, to me, it screams out that we almost need a standard or something so that consumers can understand when they buy something with a, uh, a hallmark on or a British that actually they know it's not just been manufactured in the UK. This is actually supporting British farmers. Um, is there something like that in the pipeline? We've already got that. Um, and about a third of the wool that we sell is going to brands that do care it's British wool are specifying that. So the logo that consumers need to look for is a British wool shepherd's crook logo. So um, we've got that um, now with 140 different brands ranging from carpet manufacturers such as Brockway and Brinton's 
um, bedding companies such as the Wool Room, Harrison Spinks, who make uh, mattresses, right through down to some quite niche novelty products. There's a company called Little Bow Sheep that make um, tumble dryer balls. Um, and it's the Shepherd's Crook Mark logo that consumers need to be looking for to know that they're buying British wool with confidence. But what about the fact that, you know, you've already just said that, you know, some some of these products have got the Union Jack on and stuff like that. I guess it's a little bit like, you know, Cornish pasties. You're not allowed to call it a Cornish pasty unless it's actually made in Cornwall. And that is to protect the industry there. Is there not an argument for actually not just having this British standard, which you've um, talked about there, but actually um, outlawing and making it against the law for um, to to kind of almost mislead consumers into thinking that they're buying British wool? when it's not with these other um, sort of indicators like the Union Jack, for example? When I'm lobbying politicians, which is a key part of my role, that's one of the key asks. So we we need to have clear labelling for the consumer, labelling that isn't misleading. Um, so I've, I have two asks when I talk to government. One is procurement policy. So we can specify that it's British meat going on the plates in school meals. Why can't we specify that it's British wool going on the mm. floors in the carpets of public buildings? Um, and in terms of the labelling, um, there was a, six, nine months ago, there was a scandal in the UK where some pork meat was labelled as British, even though it was from the Netherlands. I would love to have that scandal in the textile industry because it would show that we've actually made some progress. Uh, so in terms of where government could help and politicians could help it's that clarity on the labeling but when you've got a complicated supply chain um that is challenging so from wool leaving the sheep's back to turning into a jumper such as this it might go through seven different companies so british wool gathers the wool we sell it on behalf of our thirty thousand sheep farmer members to the industry goes through a scouring plant it goes and gets carded, it's spun, it's dyed, then it goes to knitwear, then it goes to a distributor and eventually ends up in a retail environment. Having that visibility and transparency through the whole supply chain is crucially important. And I think this is somewhere that the textile industry is moving to. So it's not just an issue for ourselves, it's an issue for the Australians and New Zealanders. And we need to work together as an industry on this. And it's making sure that the consumer has transparency. Where was the clothing manufactured? Was it in a sweatshop in Southeast Asia? Mm. Or was it in a factory with good employment standards? What was the environmental footprint of the dyeing or the spinning or the um, scouring processes? So that the consumer can really understand what they're buying, what the environmental impact of that product is, and have confidence in terms of the origin not just of the raw material, but through the supply chain as a whole. And Andrew, um, as the CEO of the, the British Wool Board, what would you like to say to farmers um, directly? A lot of them will be watching um, some of the clips that I'm going to put up on social media. What would you like to say to those that are saying that at the moment they're not getting a fair price for their wool? I completely agree that they're not getting a fair price for their wool. In terms of how they can work and support us. We do need to keep the scale in the industry. We need to keep the critical mass of wool going into the collection set system so that we have the ability to market and argue on their behalf. We've got to keep the economics of the infrastructure 
viable. But British Will is an organisation, in addition to marketing their will, we're advocating for our members. The SFS consultation that's currently going on in Wales, we are uh, making strong representations to the Welsh Government on that. In terms of things like shearing training, making sure that we train 850 to 1,000 new shearers every year in the UK, that's crucial to looking after our members' interests as well. Fantastic. Um, and Andrew Hogley, um, CEO of the British Wool Board, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for, for joining me today, Andrew, and good luck um, with the future. Hopefully we can support the farmers with better prices with some of the initiatives you've talked about today. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Right, to the rest thank of you, you it is Friday. It's the last Friday of February, um, but definitely don't go anywhere because we've got more fantastic shows coming up for you this afternoon. So stick with us here on TNT. TNT.